Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome. This is Unheard. I'm Freddie Sayers. It is the last day of 2021 and it's been quite a year. We all thought 2020 was pretty much the weirdest year we'd lived through, but 21 had quite a few surprises of its own. So we thought we'd look back on some of the highlights and lowlights, some of the weird developments, and maybe what it might mean for next year and the time to come. And to help us do that, we have gathered two of Unheard's biggest stars, Mary Harrington and Aris Rusinos. Let us just kick straight off then. So going in time order, 2021 began with Trump still just about around. He was still on social media. And then there were those riots or those what's sometimes called the Capitol Hill insurrection um, over in Washington, D.C. A certain number of people stormed the Capitol building. It became this enormous crisis and was generally perceived as some kind of putsch or attempted takeover. And then the very next day after that, Donald Trump was kicked off all social media platforms in a kind of follow-up putsch of a, of a kind. Aris, what was your experience of that? You, you're, you're not a huge America file at this point. I don't think the, uh, the Jan 6 putsch or whatever you want to call it can really be separated from the kind of previous uh, months of you know political disorder in the U.S. Obviously, I'm very bearish on uh, on America's prospects of maintaining political stability in the future, of having you know smooth, orderly transitions of power and so on. The weird, I think, the weird thing with January the sixth was it was this kind of Schmittian moment, right? It was just it was like a state of exception, but there was no ultimately there was no dictator there. It's like he kind of he led up to like a, an auto coup and then I don't know what he was expecting it kind of there was no moment there it's funny like even before that I had um you know friends like DC types who were in the months leading up to the election uh what they were most worried about was during the, the whole period of protest like the George Floyd stuff um Bill Barr uh had assembled essentially a kind of private army um, from like the various parts of like you know the U.S. kind of security state, from the post kind of you know 9/11. Um, so you have all these different kind of armed agencies, 
were all kind of assembled in DC. Um, so you had all the all the parts actually of a very disorderly transition. A genuine coup could have taken all, place. You mean all the moving parts are actually there for that for something like that to happen in the future, and actually, you know, mm. with a more competent actor, I think yeah. I'd, I'd be very surprised if, if um, you know, America's next few elections are, are smooth. So my response, and I want to come to Mary in a second, was I experienced it a lot as the hysteria of the left responding to it was a lot of the drama of that moment. Because I think what, if you analyse it piece by piece, it's quite hard to find this big attempted putsch. Mm. I mean, the speeches that Trump was making were basically normal political speeches. He wanted to have a, a, a rally in DC. He obviously allowed it to build momentum. At no point did he say, let's overthrow the capital. He just wanted a big protest. And he had this whole thing about you know, the you know, illegitimacy of the result, which is what gets everyone so close to the point where they can call it a, a kind of attempted coup. But I don't know, the, the, I don't feel the evidence is there for it to actually be an attempted coup. And then the events itself, it was a small number of hundreds of people who overpowered or were basically let into the Capitol compound, which was a massive policing error, or maybe the police were, you know, not to be trusted. And then they got in and, and we watched images of them watching, walking around the mm. Capitol building, like kind of awed, teenagers on a school visit. They were taking selfies, they were looking at the monuments, they were sitting at Nancy Pelosi's desk. That was my experience. Mary, tell me if I'm wrong. Well, for me, actually, the, the image that resonated from that whole episode was not so much the Capitol Hill riot, or whatever you want to call it, insurrection, putative putsch. Um, it was Joe Biden's inauguration shortly afterwards, which took place in front of a very carefully selected audience of exclusively the American ruling class mm. um, behind concrete barriers and with something like 10,000 members of the National Guard ensuring that the streets were, were empty of any dissent or you know, incursion, you know, pollution by the hoi polloi. Um, and if, if, you, if you put those two, those two moments together, I, I mean, my you know, one, one possible way of reading it is to think that, you know, on January the 6th, what happened was the a last ditch attempt by an American people who genuinely believed that the capital belonged to them as democratic citizens to enter that space and to say, no, actually, we want, to, we want our voices heard. You know, whatever you think of what they wanted to say or whatever you think of their political orientation, you know, this it, it felt to me like a genuine, it was, it had a sort of grassroots en energy to it and a kind of chaotic um, sense of democratic participation, you know, however kind of, you know, mm. cack-handed it was in practice and however disruptive it was in practice, you know, the, uh, my, my sense was that there was something genuine. And, and one, once people got inside, they were saying things like, this is ours, you know, this is this belongs to us, the American people. And as you say, they were walking around in a state of awe. And, and then the response to that was to exclude those people altogether behind a kind of cordon sanitaire. And so from where I'm sitting, you know, one way of reading the whole, the whole episode was that in fact the putsch happened. And the putsch was a putsch by the American ruling class, the sort of digital era American ruling class against the American people. Well, that takes us very neatly into what happened the very next day on January the 7th, which was that Donald Trump was kicked off Twitter and Facebook simultaneously. Yeah. 
and his voice was removed. That kind of links so much into what you're saying that the sort of reverse putsch, the the the, the top down putsch, yeah. um, and the remarkable thing of the rest of 2021, as far as Donald Trump is concerned, it's it almost feels weird to be talking about him mm-hmm. because it feels like ancient history, mm-hmm. doesn't it? And how very very successful that censorship was. And I remember at the time, there was lots of talk of, oh, you know, you can kick off Donald Trump from Twitter, but he's, his, he will quickly start up an alternative social media. He will begin a new media empire. He will, his voice will be heard. It will still continue to resonate. Uh-uh, that did not happen. He has very, very effectively been silenced. Mm-hmm. And the whole world politics feels different without him. Many people will say that it feels better but it's whatever your view of that, it's a remarkable thing that it was the CEOs of social media companies in California who made that global change. Collectively, um, in collusion with one another. I think there's something extremely significant about that, which goes in tandem. It goes hand in hand with using the National Guard and a set of concrete barriers to eliminate ordinary, un- uncredentialed people from the centres of American power. I think that's a that that's that's probably one of the key trends of 2021. This sense that you know ordinary, uncredentialed people have just been eliminated from the centres of power. Or there's there's a sort of growing collusion amongst the people who govern, um, a, a growing consensus among people who govern that that's just that's the prudent way forward. So, Aris, let me just put the alternative yeah. position to you, which is that my liberal American friends would say, no. Never before in living memory has the legitimacy of an election result been overtly challenged by the loser. Mm-hmm. Um, never before have all of the institutions of liberal democracy been so undermined. He showed no respect for them. He was a danger to the republic. He was a danger to the ongoing democratic system. And yes, it was a bit heavy handed to forcibly remove him from social media and so on. But it was a necessary step to protect the republic. Is that I right? mean, look, just because I don't like the people making these arguments, these arguments aren't necessarily wrong. Like, you could very well make that case. Like, these are, you know, legitimate uh, arguments. There's a, there's a lot to it. In terms of, you know, Trump being kicked off Twitter, surely it's just, you know, Silicon Valley CEOs sucking up to the new bosses. You know, they don't want to be broken up. They don't want their um, unparalleled reach over, over political life and, you know, uh, the fate of nations to be, to be impacted. I mean, do you think that if the situation had been reversed, Trump would have had scruples about kicking off his sort of political rivals from media platforms? I mean, I mean that's an interesting theoretical. You, can't, you don't I intuitively don't, feel that he would sort of defend their right to slag him off. No, but I don't no, know. I don't, I don't think a... he'd do that. I think you know, that's not how Trump ever rolled on social media. I mean, he was an absolute genius at, at internet-specific ways of fighting, which is mm. to say you never, you, you never try and rebut the opponent's arguments, you just say they're lying and then escalate. And that's just how internet meme wars happen. And Trump was just a native, hideous genius at that. You know, that's, that's not a compliment <laughs> from the point of view of civilised discourse, but that was, that was what he did. You know, and in some respects, I think you probably could argue that, that the internet without Trump is a slightly, slightly more low-key place. And, mm. and there's some... There, there's something to be said for that. So he's he's silenced for now, but his presence is still felt. I think I think the liberals really miss him. 
let's move on to March and April of yes. 2021. Um, so this next section is looking at something a bit closer to home. We are looking at that amazing interview that Prince Harry and Meghan did with Oprah in a extremely luxurious Los Angeles mansion in the garden. Um, and this is obviously mainly a kind of tabloid fodder. It's yeah. something that Piers Morgan gets very excited about. And I don't think we need to sort of focus on the evils or merits of Meghan or exactly what her relationship with the Queen was or wasn't. But it does feel significant in that this was a kind of clash of values. And what we saw was, I mean, this is how I experienced it. What we saw was two irreconcilable and competing ethical frameworks mm -hmm. where we have sort of Queen Elizabeth, this old-fashioned representative of this institution that is impossible to justify, um, whose morals are based on duty, restraint, being quiet rather than loud, not giving voice to every vagary of your heart or your every impulse, representation, symbolism, and a kind of yeah, old-fashioned sensibility. And then Megan, who is very much the modern individualist liberal um, for whom every fairy story ends with the, you know, either the, the princess marrying the prince, literally in her case, or, you know, the, the, the frozen narrative, the, the person escaping the strictures of their overly conservative, overly establishment family or set up and giving voice to their deepest desires. And in a way, it feels like Meghan has been outraged that uh, the institution of the British monarchy did not allow her to do that. And that sort of Oprah interview was the roar of mm -hmm. a different kind of ethic. Am I talking nonsense or is there any No, truth? I mean, you know, it's, it's liberalism and conservatism, isn't it? Like you say, it's duty versus kind of individual self-expression and, you know, self-remaking. Uh, it's hard not to see it as a, as a moment of kind of national decline in a sense. Um, that, you know, all our, all our illusions are stripped away and we're, you know, we're, we behold uh, how things actually are. And how are things? I mean, if ha Harry wants to give up being part of the royal family to become a mental health podcaster in LA, you know, like that's a, that shows where power lies, where, I mean, he's aesthetically uh, unappealing, though it is, like his, his rationale isn't wrong. Like he is... He is in the, the heart of power, well, right? To be fair, he's also sixth in line to the throne, so who cares what he thinks? You know, just from, from yeah. the point of view of the royal family generally, I, I feel like, you know, they, they're very keen to make themselves the centre of everything, ideally, you know, as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But who cares what Harry thinks? Because he's sixth in line to the throne. He's, he's, he's pretty much in irrelevancy. You know, and there's a great big hoopla about him because there's a great media engine behind you know that that will that will feed off any kind of celebrity energy, and of mm. course, something royal is is a is an immense source of battery power for that kind of that kind of garbage industry. But who cares what Harry thinks from the point of view of the British monarchy? I mean, you know, the British monarchy might be might be reaching the end of its natural, or it might not. I mean, I think there's I think there's hope for it yet. I don't I don't even know either. You know, 
that I would see it in terms of liberalism versus conservatism, so much as between a worldview that that's, that sees room for you know kind of relationships based on covenant, you know, based on loyalty and just promises that once you've made them you can't unmake, and relationships based on selfhood and transaction. I mean, that, that is, is liberalism and conservatism, isn't it? I I I think. Be, no, because I, I think I see um, the left and the right as sort of two cheeks of the same backside, mm. you know, within within the overall overarching liberal framework. Mm. And actually, you know, in as the the royal the British royal family, I think of as a sort of a, a kind of com, com, a survi- it's co- the covenantal mode in it's the, the covenantal relationship in kind of survival mode within that political framework. Actually, in that sense, it does echo the Edward VIII scandal in the thirties, yes. which is often talked about it's not just that Wallace Simpson was also American and there are other kind of aesthetic parallels it's also that he also wanted to follow his heart rather yeah. than yeah, stick yeah, to yeah. his covenant well, stick to his exactly and exactly so in a sense Harry and Meghan are making a kind of category error they are in, in I mean I think she I think she she has become as vengeful as she has toward the royal family because she became a princess she married into royalty and then discovered it just wasn't as glamorous as she thought I mean, if you think about the British aristocracy, you know, their carpets are always fading at the edges and their houses are freezing cold and, you know, and they're, you know, full of full of dogs and everything's just not actually that glamorous. Mm. Um, you know, I, I can well imagine that, you know, having having come from L.A. and Hollywood and being used to people really genuinely, absolutely, you know, conscience free, bowing and scraping to her all the time. She was horrified to discover that in the royal household, like servants, servants have views, you know, and there might be ways to express them. But, but you know, in fact, the relationship mm. is. Is much more complex and also, much more mutual. They were literally put in Frogmore Cottage, yeah. which is it's know, a cottage. It's, it's, not a it's a lot less than whatever the Los Angeles mansion just was so, that they now just so. Inhabit. And I think she was appalled by the lack of glamour involved in being a British princess, and has has whisked Harry back to LA into where where glamour and where where aristocracy really is boundless. If we're going to extrapolate from it, if we see it as the, a kind of early or mid skirmish in mm. the bigger battle to come between these different value systems, do we think Aris is right that essentially the Megan view of the world is now triumphant and it's only a matter of time before these final relics, such as the idea of the British monarchy, are consigned to history? I don't know. I go back and forth on this, Freddie. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm just full doomer. I mean, so something I'm f- fully in Aris mode, mm-hmm. and just some, just the the blackest of pills, and I just think it's all doomed. And you know, we're all going to end up as atoms in these nakedly transactional relationships with one another, and there's just no space left for loyalty or honor or any of those any of those more ancient, more covenantal values. And other times, I think no, actually, people people aren't idiots, and people people are stubborn. And you know it might it won't be the Megans of this world, but people will find ways to resist because that's what we do. We're human. Um, mm. I don't know is the short answer, but I, I think I think we're down, but we're not out. You know, humanity is down, but not out. And one key moment, at least specifically regarding the monarchy, will be the sad, but one must speculate, not too distant moment when the Queen dies. Yeah. And the way the UK reacts to that is going to be very interesting, isn't it? Because there will be this it will be such a huge moment and whether it precipitates some sort of backlash in the direction you're talking about where we sort of people want to preserve something of that spirit or whether it the movement to transition to charles and everything puts people off the whole thing entirely 
and there's a whole shift of system. Well, it's worth bearing in mind that actually the most, the closest Britain ever got to being a republic, um, you know, where you know, MPs talking openly about abolishing the British monarchy, which is not something that anybody would do, would have done in my lifetime. No. And the closest Britain ever came to being a monarchy was during Queen Victoria's reign. And we think of Victoria now as, you know, peak, peak British monarchy, you know, in the sort of uh, constitutional monarchy system, you know, there, there she was and her face is everywhere. And, and, and she's thought of now mm. as having always been unassailably, you know, at the heart of British public life. But there were, there was a, but there were 10 years after Albert died where she just withdrew from public life altogether and just, just, wouldn't, just wouldn't play ball. And, and by the end of it, people were openly calling for, for an end to the British monarchy and the abolition of the civil list and the whole, just getting rid of the whole thing. Mm. And it was only, it was only as, she, as she began to re-emerge into public life, I think there was an attempt on her life and also the crown prince became very ill and then recovered and everybody, and then there was, she, she appeared in public um, to celebrate his survival and, and suddenly she was back, at, mm. back in the heart of the British public again. I suppose the point I'm making is that, you know, it might, it, things might seem very bleak now, but they seem very bleak then as well. And, and in fact, you know, the relationship of Great Britain to its monarchy, I think, is, is a, it's such a complex one and such an ancient one that I'd, I'd honestly be surprised if it'll go down without considerably more of a fight than mm. we've seen so far. I mean, yeah, very obviously when the Queen dies, we'll be in a period of mourning, not not just for her, but for, you know, the last link with uh, with a Britain that is probably better than the one we have now, you know. Um, is that necessarily a bad thing? Maybe maybe we're still kind of coasting along on the fumes of, of you know, great powder. Maybe, mm. maybe it's actually good to kind of lay that to rest and actually think, okay, what are we now? You know, what can we do? And because to give us some more optimism. Prince Charles. I'm a huge Prince Let's Charles fan. Let's hear about Absolutely. Prince Charles. Harris. I imagine, you know, like a Charles III Renaissance. I don't know if he's going to keep that name, but Doubt I imagine it. him like Leviathan just looming over the land, you know. The revival of the state under Charles. Give us, give us a minute for, for everyone's benefit. <clears throat> give us a minute on the unrealized merit of Prince Charles. Why is he much better than people think? What's he done right? I mean, you know, obviously... <laughs> Obviously, the environmental stuff, everyone talks about that, but he was right decades ago. Um, his aesthetic taste, you know, generally has been uh, borne out by events, I think. Um, I do get the sense that, I mean, we watched a, a, it was a BBC, you know, doc, obviously it's PR for Charles uh, a few months ago. My wife, you know, Irish Republican, ended up absolutely loving Prince Charles, like absolutely just, you know, Fantastic, wonderful person. Everything he says, he just seems like a very. Maybe I'm projecting onto Charles here, but there's always a kind of hint of controversy about him, whether or not he'd he'd meddle in the workings of the state, you know, whether he'd overstep his bounds. And I want him to. He should, because you know the state doesn't work. Like we have a terrible state. Or I think there could be him. some. No, but I think there could be some uh, creative. So do you interactions think we should be reaching the end of constitutional monarchy and go back to just monarchy. Divine right of kings. You know, I'm not, I'm not against it. <laughs> okay, well, I, one thing I will say about Charles, which I don't think many people understand, is that he's also a mystic in a weird way. He has he this very yeah. esoteric he's a set of interests. Yeah. That's know. right, and he and he sponsors a lot of kind of underground groups that are looking into sort of alternate philosophies, Eastern. Um, Christian mysticism, he he has this whole, it's a, precisely the bit that most people would find most absurd. Mm. It's the talking to trees, the sort of um, slightly kind of woolly alternative 
view of the world. But that's precisely the bit I think is most interesting. So all power to him. Let's fast forward to May when the announcement was made about Afghanistan, that all of the final troops were going to be withdrawn. Um, this is acting on the deal that Donald Trump did with the Taliban uh, at the end of his presidential term. In August of this past year, we had that extraordinary scene of the Taliban capturing Kabul, or I'm not sure if that was exactly the right word, because they appeared to turn up with very little resistance and just walk into Kabul, which surprised apparently everyone. And in the very beginning of September, there were those weird days when we had scenes at the airport, everyone, there was thousands of people frantically trying to get out. The final droops were withdrawn. Everyone was tearing their hair out and clutching pearls and saying what an absolute disaster this was. Specifically because apparently the covenant that the West had made with the people of Afghanistan in some way was being broken. Uh, and I confess that I saw it slightly differently at the time because I thought every president for the past few presidents has promised to get out of Afghanistan. And here was Joe Biden actually doing it. And yes, it was messy. And of course, it, it was sad for certain groups within that society. But it was always going to be messy if he actually did it. And it, Biden, frankly, went up in my estimation hmm. at that moment. Mary, how did you feel about it? It was, it was a very, I thought, significant moment in in a lot of big stories that we've been telling ourselves about how the world works for some time, particularly. I mean, the, the central one, I suppose, is this, this dream that you can, you can just roll democracy and you know, the kind of liberal worldview out worldwide um, at, at gunpoint if necessary, and so or, you know, through, by, by pump priming, you know, seeding a few NGOs and you know, sort of generating uh, an entire infrastructure of civil society from the top down. And it feels, it feels like that's been an industry in in the United States and also in in Britain and well the the liberal West for some for some decades now, um, you know the 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 sort of NGO industry, you know which which has has sincerely believed that it's it's possible to to make the world better sort of from from the top down in that way, and to create you know ex nihilo um, new civil societies which work the way we want them to, you know whether it's by educating Afghan women about French conceptual art or. Well, I I don't know funding funding NGOs to support this or that minority, um, and I think it was it was absolutely devastating for a lot of people who, despite Iraq having gone as horribly wrong as it did, you know, still very sincerely believed that that's that was achievable, and not only was it achievable, but it was it was the West's the Anglo the Anglophone West's moral mission to mm. pursue this and to to affect this worldwide, because you know self evidently our way of doing things is the right one, um, according to that story. And watching and, and discovering that not only was that a paper tiger, but that it, the whole thing was founded on sand. And in fact, the stories that people have been telling themselves, you know, in order to sustain that for as long as they've been sustaining it, were founded on nothing. You know, the, the, this, this army, which had been trained at the cost of, I don't know how many trillions, um, just crumbled, disappeared. Or wasn't even sides, there. Or wasn't even mm -hmm. there. And, you know, the, the, whole, the whole thing had basically been a gigantic con. You know, it had been sort of, the best part of two decades of a massive scam, I think was was horrifying. But, but what's what's truly astonishing is that since then, 
Um, you know, we're hearing very, very much the same story being generated now in the context of Taiwan and Ukraine. There are people who just won't let go of that idea of America as the global policeman and this idea that, you know, in fact, we need to uphold, you know, we, we need to roll out a particular set of values worldwide or defend a particular set of values worldwide. Um, it's it's still there. People pe- people are deeply attached to it, it's, despite, you know, catastrophe after catastrophe. It's that, there. But I do feel like this was a significant year, as you said in the first part there. And this is, you know, we're all roughly 40, I dare, you know, share that crucial detail with everyone. But it means that our whole life, pretty much... Has been lived under the shadow of that narrative, yes. Has been lived in that narrative. So it it feels like the end of a whole sort of moral imperative. And And my feeling from, if you think about how outraged and distraught everyone was about Afghanistan in August and September, and how very little we hear about it now. Actually, it feels to me like left and right have accepted the end of that narrative, and that this was actually the final death knell to that way of thinking. I don't. I think it would now be impossible for a serious project on the left or the right in a Western country to get enough public support to do another international adventure like that. There are many more voices on the realist side of foreign policy in the conversation now than there would have been even five years ago. And certainly, you know, I think you would have you would have struggled to get any airtime at all for a for a realist argument twenty years ago. Because everyone everyone just took it for granted that, you know, the sort of liberal manifest destiny was just that that's that was just the reality. And and I think you're right that that the wind has changed. And I mean, you you only have to look around you. You, know, you only have to look at look at the international news to see that the, that just isn't the world we live in anymore. I mean, we've, everyone's been watching China assemble its Belt and Road Initiative for some years now, and I think you'd have to be asleep, or or just you know, to have been on you know, to have been effectively unconscious for the last ten years, not to realise that that has an immense, significant, long term impact on you know sort of fantasies of kind of Anglo hegemony going on in perpetuity. Aris, you, yeah. you've spent a lot of time in the Middle East. You were a war reporter. You followed this. Mm-hmm. Is this the final sort of death knell to some kind of America, American imperial hegemony? Or how do you feel about it? In the Middle East, yeah. I think you even see kind of um, US client states like the UAE kind of uh, hedging their bets. Um, in terms of Biden, I think he's interesting in that he was obviously brought to power by his, you know, kind of liberal imperialist establishment that was, you know, up in arms about Trump's kind of very, uh, quite vulgar uh, form of realism. And yet Biden is himself. He's a classic foreign policy realist, right? He's actually, I think he's a, I'm quite pro-Biden. I think he's a, a broadly competent manager of American retrenchment, which is a very nicer way of saying decline. But he's made it very Do you clear. like him because he's weak? Or you like him because he accepts? No, I think because <laughs> he accepts the inevitable and he's, broadly speaking, uh, extricating America from its commitments that it, it can no longer afford or maintain in in a relatively undamaging way. So I think I think it's actually uh, a very low risk of hopefully of some major you know, conflagration uh, bringing in the US under Biden's watch. Whereas Trump, uh, I think his his realism was uh, overstated by his uh, by his fans. Or boosters, and Do you feel like I think in a, he, I think he could have created, you know, a terrible degree of chaos uh, uh, 
uh, in the process of, of retrenchment. But so. that what was but when to go back to Afghanistan and mm. that withdrawal and all of those chaotic scenes and women in Kabul not being able to uh, do exactly what they were able to do before, girls still, as I understand it, not returning to secondary school, this sense that we had made a promise to that country and we had failed to back it up. And a lot of people, conservative and liberals in the West, were really distraught by that because it felt like an admission of defeat. Was yeah, it? sure. But I mean, it, it's completely unrooted in the realities of Afghanistan, right? So, you know, all the, all the female newsreaders and, you know, kind of NGO wonks, whatever, in Kabul were essentially built on, um, you know, built on a, a throne of blood in the countryside, essentially, in the sense that, you know, a lot of, a lot of Afghan peasants are being killed in, in ways that, you know, whether by kind of CIA trained death squads or, you know, drones hitting the, you know, unintended targets, whatever, a huge amount of death just to kind of build this unsustainable Kabul bubble that really had no kind of, um, no meaningful chance of survival. So I think, you know, when you've got people like, you know, Tom Tugendhat, whatever, saying, oh, you know, we should go back on our own somehow and, you know, defend Kabul, like it's completely just divorced from reality. There's something even more sort of profound than that and more controversial, actually, which is what the people of that country really want. You know, and there was a Pew Research study, and I have no idea how much credence to give an opinion poll in Afghanistan, obviously, but the numbers of people who preferred Sharia law, who preferred to live in a more traditional way, were astonishing. Mm. Um, very, very high majorities. And you, know, you, you wonder whether the situation in Afghanistan with all of these rural provinces just unrecognizable from the metropolitan center is oddly similar or at least a kind of you know, parallel version of what we have in western countries where there's a, a minority mm. in these in the more metropolitan areas who prefer this more sort of progressive internationalist future and maybe the majority prefer to live as they're used to is that a possibility and should we be acknowledging that? I mean, yeah, I mean, like, even if you go back to the Soviet occupation, um, Soviets expended a great deal of effort into, you know, expanding uh, girls' education and having female pilots and female politicians, all this kind of stuff. It was a huge deal for them. And that was one of, that was one of the main um, uh, drivers of the revolt against the Soviet occupation in the sense that, you know, angry, uh, you know, provincial conservatives, for want of a better word, were, you know, scandalised by it. I think we need to bring in um, Mary on this because this is, this is, you know, this is high controversy here. This is, this is a dangerous zone because for a bunch of people sitting in a studio in London to decree that actually the people of Afghanistan prefer it like that is not a reasonable thing to do. What but you're going to invite me to do I, that anyway. No, I'm going, I'm, I just want to focus on the women point, really, because that is the thing that is most commonly discussed. And obviously there are thousands of women in Kabul in particular who are very, very angry and frightened and upset. And the future they were promised doesn't seem to be available anymore. Can we even put ourselves in the mindset of a, of a woman in a provincial part of Afghanistan who's never thought that way? 
How should we think about that, Mary? Um, I mean, the short answer to that is no, not really. Um, But one of the themes I often come back to in my writing is the the extent to which um, cultures, you know, all the way down to the granular, particularly really at the granular level of family life, which is to say sex roles and, you know, how power men and women relate, live together and how, how we raise children and how we exist in extended families. It's impossible to disaggregate that from the wider material conditions that any given social group lives in. You just can't. Um, and to put that to put that slightly more bluntly, it means you cannot roll out the kind of progressive mindset which is which is common to and arises in a high tech, affluent, uh, modern world. You just can't roll that out in, in in a context where people go to the well every day for water and there's no there's no electricity or or regular sanitation. Now, I, I will freely admit that I don't know an enormous amount about how Afghan women, Afghan peasant women live, but my sense is that it's not a high-tech, affluent, modern civilization. Um, you know, th- life is hard. Um, it's certainly true, and you know, plenty of Af- and actually, in fact, the Taliban have written very compassionately about this. Um, you know, maternal death rates are extremely high among Afghan women. Um, life, life is very hard. You know, depression, depression. You know, un- unhappiness is high. Death, death rates are high. Illness is high. Um, infant mortality is high. The Taliban have written about this and spoken passionately about wanting to improve those very immediate physical conditions for women in Afghanistan. Though and we, and we, one of the I should say we take the Taliban's <laughs> pronouncements with. A healthy pinch of salt. Indeed, but I think we should take everybody's pronouncements on what's going on in Afghanistan with a healthy pinch of salt. Um, my my point is that you know, from the point of view of a peasant woman in Afghan in you know rural Afghanistan, it might be more relevant to to have a group taking an interest in infant mortality in in your area than in whether or not you can you can enjoy the the conceptual artworks of nineteenth century France. Um, you know, they, that that might just be more to the point, really. You know, do they do is is the running water and vaccinations for my children? Perhaps even more important than than that is just the the fundamental fact of security. Yeah. You know, we did an interview here with Clarissa Ward, who is a CNN highly liberal internationalist correspondent. She's the chief foreign correspondent for CNN, and she was not disagreeing that large parts of the Afghan population were happy to have that Taliban back because they fundamentally choose security over chaos. Yeah, I think, I think an enormous... That's the kind of basic offer of the mm. Leviathan, isn't yeah. it? The, a vast majority of ordinary normies, you know, whatever normie means in a given context. But I'd say, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to bet that for normie Afghan families, it's more, it's more to the point to have, to have you know, availability of fresh water and preferably not to have your children bombed. Than it is, you know, to to have to have access to the full Western panoply of um, minority rights. I, I, I'm willing to bet that most of them just don't really care about that. Mm-hmm. And more to the point, a number of them would would feel that the two things are actively in conflict. And actually, know? just yesterday on Unheard, we had Rory Stewart, again a liberal. Mm. I'm not sure exactly how you describe his politics. He was a Conservative MP. He's not anymore. Saying that we should re-engage with the Taliban. And potentially recognise the Taliban government mm. in order not to make them more of a sort of pariah than they actually are. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I mean, as you're saying, they need to provide basic governance, they need to provide basic security to kind of um, 
to win over the people uh, and to prevent yeah, Afghanistan's torment going on longer than it should. But I mean, they're failing at the moment of um, at uh, preventing ISIS attacks. So, you know, ultimately we're going to need to help the Taliban to fight ISIS, which seems like a you know strange irony after two decades. But I'm going to move on because we got into a kind of beginnings of agenda discussion uh, at the end of that section on <coughs> Afghanistan. And our next topic for 2021 was the British court's decision to uphold Maya Forstater's argument that her rights to have gender critical beliefs were defendable in an employment context. And it is not l legal since that Maya Forstater judgment of June to hold a gender critical feminist mm -hmm. views against her. I'm going to turn to you, Mary, since this is a topic which you have written a lot about. Do you feel that those events and 2021 in general was some kind of turning point in the conversation around trans? So that's the first thing I'd say, just just returning, forgive me, to Afghanistan for a moment. I think we, we, we could look at, you know, the, the argument over what Afghan women want and the argument over, you know, whether or not women can even be defined as two two ends of the same argument or, or you know as two two lenses on the same question of why what exactly we understand by sex roles and in what context and i think the the, the stark differences between you know, arguing on the one hand about whether or not it's possible to liberate afghan women from their material from the roles which are to a significant extent imposed by the material conditions of living in rural you know, semi-desert um, war-torn afghanistan versus the the absence of roles which are enabled which is you know which is a condition you know almost pretty much entirely enabled by living in a high tech western society where you know for certainly for knowledge workers um there is there's there's, there's very little meaningful reason why a job sh shouldn't be done as just as well, just as well by a female person as a male person so so at one end you have a question about whether or not afghan you well hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Whether or not women can be the same as men, you know, because of one set of material, uh, material conditions and right at the other end of the spectrum you have the the world that we're the arguments that we're having over here which are about whether or not there is even any meaningful differences between mm. men and women because the material conditions we live in render those differences almost irrelevant you know except in some very specific contexts which is really what about this argument over gender quote unquote gender critical beliefs is about um so why i guess we should just in case there are viewers who haven't followed it or think that it's a peripheral sort of storm in a teacup culture war kind of argument a lot of people think that i think that this so-called trans debate is something that happens on social media whilst normal people don't really engage in it why do you think it's important the the gender critical argument is states that while in in the course of ordinary life um, there are very few meaningful differences between men and women. For example, you know, a, a, a lawyer who is a woman will, is, is just as capable of doing a great job lawying as a lawyer who's a man. So, you know, who cares? Who cares about sex differences? Um, and people want, to, people want to extend the principle of who cares about sex differences for quite, you know, you know in good faith, for feminist reasons, to just everything. Um, even to the point really of saying, you know, if you want to be a woman, even if you have a male body, then you ought to be able to be a woman, because in fact, we've all we've all agreed that there are no meaningful differences between the sexes anymore. And that that's that is our settled feminist view. And on the other side, the argument is that um, actually, no, that isn't true, because there are there, there still remain a number of contexts in which physic physiologically, the differences between men and women remain politically salient, for example, in sex segregated sport in you know in sex segregated contexts such as prisons or changing rooms um you know it it matters to to women it matters to children that they be able to be free from males um not because all males are dangerous but because most of the people who are most most sex offenders are males um and the, you know and this is you know, hashtag not all men obviously um but you know that the numbers are overwhelming Think something like 99% of all sexual assaults are carried out by males. Mm. And, and the gender critical women say, no, we need to be able to uphold principle, a principle of segregation, not on the basis of the role that you want to play in a kind of cosmetic sense, but, the, but, but what sex you are. And that in fact, you want, it's not possible to change sex. You can change your appearance. You can pass as the opposite sex, you know, with a significant amount of medical intervention sometimes, but you can't actually literally change sex. And we, we need to be able to hold to that. But that's, it's a different, because I genuinely don't know the answer to this. What is the main driving energy behind sort of the side of the argument you're talking about? Is it more that it's just a fallacy? It's not scientifically possible and so why are people talking about it? Because it's nonsense and it needs to be resisted on the basis of defending truth as a principle. Or is it this idea of special refuges for women, sports, prisons, a, a kind of more practical impulse about defending potentially vulnerable women? It probably depends which person you ask. I mean, I know Kathleen, who's been on this programme, you know, comes at it from the 
from the perspective of analytic philosophy and you know a, a, a desire to get at the truth um, so so that's her, so her, her perspective is quite sort of theoretical or at least her, her entry point into the conversation has been quite theoretical saying well no this, this just isn't true this is factually not true so in what sense could we understand it to be meaningful to people and her, her book material girls goes into this idea that it's a it's a fiction and that in fact fictions can can have a have a significant social place but we need to we need to understand them as fictions um, and there are others who take a much more sort of ground level um, feminist activist um, perspective on the whole thing. In in Californian prisons, um, female inmates are now being given condoms because um, because gender identity is now treated as the same as sex mm. for the purposes of deciding which prison um, a, some a convict should be assigned to. The sort of opposition is always that there are these very rare exceptional examples of violence in a prison or the kind of examples you're talking about, which are then picked up and it's presented as if they happen all the time. That's uh, the argument you kind of hear I, I suppose I would, I would turn it round the other way and say, well, well how, many, how many sexual assaults that would otherwise not have happened are an acceptable price to pay in exchange for people's gender identity being respected at all times? You know, what, what, what is the acceptable toll of casualties in vulnerable women? For example, in prisons or women's refuges, you know what? What? what are, tell, tell me, give me an acceptable mm. number. You know, okay. how, how many? How many extra rapes is actually okay? Let's return a little bit to what we began talking about, which was what happened earlier this year. We've done a, the sort of background there. Do you feel that 2021, the year just passed, with that big legal judgment connected to Maya Forstetter, with what seems to be a slight change in atmosphere, at least in the UK media? with the intervention of people like J.K. Rowling, with more and more mainstream commentators from mainstream publications coming to the defense of people who took that view, even a number of people in the Guardian group. Do you think it's a turning point? And do you think that argument is sort of moving behind us? I think it's too early to tell, to be honest, Freddie. On, on the one side, I mean, but I do think it's very interesting the way the gender critical resistance has taken off in the UK. I mean, people who people who object to that resistance in the United States now refer to Britain as Turf Island <laughs> or rainy fascist island. Um, we're, we're, so, so, so Britain is now considered a hotbed, a polluting hotbed of um, gender critical feminism. And people don't understand why this this horrific thing has happened. Um, I think it's mostly down to Mumsnet, if I'm honest, um, which has which is straightforwardly a forum for women who have children to to exchange views, um, which has been a hotbed of turf radicalization for well over a decade. Um, in fact, while, while I was still on the other side, I was a mum's netter. And you know, these arguments were happen, happening ferociously, you know, back in the late in the late noughties. Um, you know, but you know, is the tide turning? I don't know. I mean, what I've been seeing happening, and this has been this has been taking shape really very slowly over the last decade. You know, from from being very much a, a conversation among mothers, you know, happening on a website in say two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, um, it's it's take it's 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 begun to coalesce really from the grassroots up via um, input from from women who have experience of trade union organising to an extent mothers who just who are just people who get things done. I mean, you know, the the the, the backbone of backbone of ordinary society is mothers who just get ordinary stuff done. Because I think one of the one of the central one of the central themes of the critique has been this this sense that the the pro 
uh, the pro-gender ideology side has been imposing a sort of orthodoxy from the top down, um, which has in fact come through the universities and is being imposed just via a march through the institutions, mm. you know, and graduates, you know, arts graduates who come out of the universities and they join NGOs and they and they bring these views with them because they're just sort of endemic in universities and have been for some time. And that in fact that the, it doesn't have a great deal of traction, um, you know, it doesn't have a great deal of popular traction beneath that, um, mm. you know, amongst ordinary people. And so in a sense, I think there are some strong analogies, you know, much as some gender critical feminists would object to this with what happened with, with what happened in the Brexit vote. Um, the, this sense that there was a there was a consensus among among people and the sort of top the very top layer of society and beneath that in fact opinion was much more textured and much and in some in some cases you know very strongly opposed to some of the things which were just being rolled out as self evidently true. I'm going to bring in Aris here because sure you may you may not want to dive straight into the trans issue yeah. and get sort of online uh, hate or whatever inevitably comes from that. But if you want, it's a very neat example of the kind of controversies that we get a lot of, where there's a sort of intellectualized elite slash university driven view of the world, which then gets resisted by something a little bit more earthy that itself then gets well, called scandalously immoral. <clears throat> this happens time and time again. Do you observe this? What I was going to say is leaving aside the, the specifics of the, of the trans debate, what I am allergic to is this kind of, you know, conservative framing of, you know, oh, it's a victory for free speech. I think this whole kind of uh, conservative emphasis on, on free speech is just a cope, basically. I think it's a, a way of... Ultimately, I don't necessarily believe in free speech. Um, uh, I don't think anyone really does. I think people fundamentally want their, their views supported and propagated and their opponents, their political opponents' views vilified and uh, condemned and hounded out of office. And I think we, this may not be a good thing. Uh, I don't, you know, it's not an ideal situation, but I think the nature of um, politics in, in the 21st century, at least, is this kind of totalizing you know, war of all against all in a sense. I think it is I think this, it's a bleak view, but I think that is true. It's a kind of you know, all politics, when you see it, is this kind of, you know, Schmittian friend-enemy distinction. Once, once you see it, you, you realise it's everywhere. And I think the, the emphasis on free speech made by, you know, liberal conservatives is fundamentally an expression of weakness because it's an expression of their inability to um, control the institutions which create the parameters of political debate. So I think it's like this, you know, desperate last-ditch kind of defense like oh, as long as we have free speech we can you know we'll survive as conservatives but it's just a very frightening alternative world you're suggesting there because I, I, i'm not promoting it but i'm saying that's what i think that's how i think it actually works in, but in, in a sense world. it's a self-fulfilling prophecy though because if both sides of a heated political argument conclude that there can be no middle ground and that the institutions that have are there to arbitrate and protect the minority view, etc. In other words, the liberal institutions mm. can no longer be trusted. And it is your war against oh, all yeah. against all. We really are in a whole new world where the extremes will gradually become dominant. It feels the inevitable result of a world where people have lost faith in the kind of mediating institutions. Is that 
where you think we're headed. Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, I'm not saying that's a good thing. In terms of the culture war, uh, I hate it. You know, I hate this kind of interminable debate over, you know, just kind of nonsensical things um, going on and on and on without a conclusion. I think it needs to be won. And, you know, I want, I want my side to win it. And the way you do that is by taking control of the institution. And, you know, I, I'm sure you don't believe, like we see this, like this goes back to talking about Trump and Twitter and stuff like that. You know, the, the liberal left, fundamentally, they do understand that. Like, they do very well at controlling institutions mm. and at um, establishing the parameters of debate and speech and uh, enforcing, you know, enforcing their rules. And I think conservatives are very bad at doing that. I mean, just returning for a moment to Vorstatter and what I think, what I find more interesting actually about that than the truth claims or otherwise of, of both sides or, you know, the granular feminist argument, what, what, what I found interesting to track over the course of 2021 has been the way in which the, um, the gender critical feminists have grasped how things actually work now politically. And they've stopped trying to appeal to politicians. They've stopped trying to fight these battles in the media. And they're going, they're going for the institutions. You know, the gender criticals have, you know, there are, they, they've formed their own campaigning groups. They've formed their own spokes institutions. They produce their own materials to go into schools. Um, Transgender Trend now has, a, has an information pack for, you know, supporting um, gender diverse young people in a way which in their view is, is more supportive of people who are gay and lesbian and questioning rather than just sending people straight onto the transgender identity pathway, for example. Um, and, and also there's been a very concerted pushback against the Stonewall diversity champions um, scheme, which has been a, 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 a crucial delivery mechanism for institutionalizing sets of policies and procedures by the HR departments of you know, an enormous number of British um, public, public and private sector organizations. Mm. So in effect, you know, sort of laundering Stonewall's view of the world into, into just, you know, the, the, the ordinary course of things via, via HR departments. And, and, and the gender critical movement has, has, has stopped trying to, you know, argue the toss in the media or, or stopped focusing on arguing the toss in the media or sort of, you know, really even debating the principle of free speech. And, and they're fighting the battle on the inst in institutional grounds instead and saying, no, actually, we need to push back against Stonewall. No, actually, we just need to, we need to get these institutions out of HR departments. And in fact, in, in fact the, the, the people have grasped um, where the battle actually is and where politics actually happens. And if you, if you, if you generalize that to a, to a bigger, um, to, if you generalize that, actually, it supports what Aris is saying, yeah. which is, which is, I mean, effectively, what you're saying is we already live in a post-democratic society Absolutely. where, in fact, um, these zero-sum epistemological battles are being contested via, for example, HR policies. Mm. And, and in fact, that, that, that's where it is now. And, you know, the democratic stuff is, is almost a kind of effect of all of that. Yeah. See, I'm going to just disagree with both of you, <laughs> if I may. Good. It's time because... we have a fight. <laughs> I think it's there's a sort of glamour in being doomerist like this to sort of fast forward trends and see them to their logical conclusion. What happened in the Maya Forstater case was that the British, normal British legal establishment defended her right to believe what you would consider the obvious. That wasn't a culture war and a capture of institutions. None, it wasn't about pamphleteering. It was just the legal system. The people who have caused perhaps the biggest shift in the thinking around this gender critical stuff 
is a BBC audio documentary about Stonewall that came out of the BBC that has been hugely influential and talked about and has helped to undermine Stonewall. And columnists in places like The Observer, people like J.K. Rowling, who is a left liberal centrist, essentially, you can see 2021 as an example of the exact opposite, which is that at least in this country, those institutions are still pretty sensible. And if pushed to a place that clearly defies logic and common sense, they will push back. And actually, even the beginning of our conversation around Donald Trump, it's the same story. We did an interview with Andrew Sullivan in the days after the January the 6th riot, and he was unbelievably perturbed and anxious and sounded, you know, it was sort of opposite end of the argument, but as dramatic as, as what Harris has been saying. He was nearly in tears in this conversation about how close the Republic came to breaking, but it didn't really. I mean, the, the terror we had around Trump's re-election and how he was going to overthrow the Constitution, he was going to get local governors to overthrow the rules about electors, and he was going to literally stage a coup that way. That didn't happen. None of the governors supported him. Even the Supreme Court of the United States, three of which he personally appointed, didn't even take for a moment seriously his argument. So actually, 2021 is a triumph of the old institutions in rejecting some of the more extreme movements, and we should take great hope from it. Discuss. What I would offer as a counterpoint is the idea that actually this is, you know, this is all just going to happen without an enormous amount of effort by, by, I, I don't want to say resistance, but by people who, who don't feel their voices are being heard. Um, you know, if we feel that there's a stifling elite orthodoxy, and in fact that doesn't represent the, the views of the majority of the country, then the majority of the country is just going to have to get off its backside and start mm. and start mm. agitating. Mm. And you know, perhaps then campaigning, we, campaigning exactly. And then, you know, at that point, you can you can you can envisage long marches back through the institutions, or you know, I, I mean, I don't think I don't think there are two directions that people could be marching in. There are a number, and not so all. So there's there's a bit of convergence there, mm. I would say. Yeah, they're, yeah. They're, yeah. Not, I mean, they're not mutually exclusive. No, absolutely, absolutely not. You know, and I'm not I'm not holding doomerist about democracy. You know, I think the only the, the only way we're going to end up with you know the sort of you know the uh, the British political process completely broken is if people give up trying to push back and people is if people give up trying to trying to take try, mm. trying to take the wheel and steer it in a slightly different direction. We have to move on because we're still only at September. <laughs> um, we have talked a lot about the UK and the US. We're now going to go further afield to a country called El Salvador in Central America, who in September of 2021, the president took the decision to make Bitcoin a national currency. It's caused um, some excitement for the crypto enthusiasts and was just quite an interesting example, I thought, of the direction we may be going in uh, with things like new currencies. And I've actually been confused, I'm happy to admit on this, because we get a lot of people in the comments underneath these videos who are very keen on crypto and think it's an enormously kind of populist um, insurgent mm. program, which is going to kind of remove the power of the financial elites and be for the little guy. But then a lot of me suspects that the big winners from crypto are the existing elites who are playing the system extremely well. and. Examples like El Salvador almost point to a sort of dystopian future where small countries could be almost bought by Google mm -hmm. or Facebook or Silicon Valley 
as convenient jurisdictions to allow their power to be fully untrammeled. Which is it? Are we pro or are we anti? Who wants to go first? Can I quickly say, like, you know, quite a few of my friends are very, you know, strong crypto evangelists, really genuinely believe it's going to, you know, dismantle the system of fiat currency and you know, the dollar system, all this kind of stuff. I just don't see it. Like, I just think, again, going back to my, you know, hobby horse, I think people vastly underestimate the power of the state. And I think in recent decades, the state has uh, let those muscles atrophy. But um, crypto just isn't regulated. Or, you know, I think a con if it ever posed a genuine threat to the dollar or to the international financial system or whatever, it would just be regulated out of existence. It would be driven, you know, completely underground. To the it would have been banned from China, for example. Well, yeah. I mean, but like, you just need the US or, you know, the EU or whatever to do it. And then it doesn't really matter if, you know, some tiny Central American country, you can go and, you know, purchase your orange juice with like some minuscule fraction of a Bitcoin. It, it, I, I don't, Not I don't. So you're so skeptic in either direction. We could say. You know, I like the idea of it. You know, I'm tempted to kind of essentially gamble on it, but I don't think it's going to change the world. But maybe, I don't know. The thing is, put the crypto movement and things like Bitcoin together with a more assertive power of the state, which we've mm -hmm. seen a lot of during these COVID years, and you get to centralized digital currencies issued by states. And mm. there is this big movement. China has issued its own. We have Britcoin uh, coming, apparently, according to Rishi Sunak. Now, that is really frightening to a lot of people because then you could be paid in government-issued digital currency, which they can add rules to. Mm. So potentially, you get your salary and it says, hey, well, unless you buy healthy food, you're not going to be able to spend it. Your salary might expire in six months unless you spend it on government-mandated uh, projects. This is the dystopian future that a lot of people are worried about. You, who's such a big sort of advocate of the yeah. state power, does, does that not make you worried? I'm not against an authoritarian state as long as I'm, as long as it's as long as you're on in my charge side. Of it. Pretty much, yeah. You're not frightened about that? Not really. I don't, I don't actually think that's vastly different to, to what we have now. Like, I really, you know, like, it's not like you have a, a giant wad of gold bars under your bed, you know, that you can have an independent Speak yourself. <laughs> but yeah. Mary, Bitcoin, crypto, El Salvador, this whole new sort of movement in in money, does it excite you or does it worry you? Well, here's the bit I don't understand about it. Um, it's it's offered, you know, the, the the upbeat story of crypto is that it will free us from being shackled to to place. It'll free us from being shackled to jurisdictions and you know larger larger sort of you know structures of state power. That's that that's the big dream, is that it, it frees people, for example, to create their create their own micro states. You know, according to their own rules, there's the sort of um, the the kind of mold bug dream of you know city states each with their own Caesar, and you can go and find one where where the rules suit you. And um, so, citizen, citizenship as a service is 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 the dream. So here's the bit I don't understand, and you know it may just be that I'm underinformed, but I genuinely don't see how this works. So in order to have crypto, we need computers, right? Because we need to be able to mine them. And that means we need to have the physical computers. And that means we need to have the motherboards, which are manufactured by actual people in actual places, you know, from materials which are mined by actual people, usually in different actual places, and which are shipped around the world on physical ships 
um, which in turn relies on relatively un, 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 uninhibited um, safe shipping lanes on a fairly regular basis. Now, we've all experienced some disruption in the global shipping industry recently, and we didn't like it. Um, and what, what I think it gets greatly underestimated, you know, in, in all of this talk about um, how, how things could change is, is just how just how far we take for granted uninterrupted global shipping. Um, and should and w which in turn depends to a significant extent on the Pax Americana. You know, the reason we have uninterrupted global, the reason we have globalization is because of the Pax Americana, broadly speaking. And should should that go away or become multipolar? I mean, in, in fact, it's a reality already that the shipping industry and international companies are have already started splitting their supply chains. Mm. So they have one supply chain to operate in the Chinese uh, realm. sphere of realm, and they have a, they have a completely independent one. So they're no longer um, they're no longer subject to disruptions between different sort of geopolitical spheres of influence. What I do not understand about crypto is that it wants to unmoor. Um, money entirely from states, but everything material that enables crypto to exist is you know, structurally dependent on the existence of states in a relative condition of peace in, internationally. So if you, if you sort of disaggregate those things, is, I mean, well, I suppose my question is, is it even possible to disaggregate those things without the entire computer industry, shipping industry, mining industry, mm. and everything just going foom underneath it, at which point it stops being able to, you stop being, not just being able to mine Bitcoin, but exchange it. So actually the whole, the, the, the foundations are more fragile than we might realize. And these sort of romantic dreams of total decoupling from state power, as you said, creating little city states, etc., actually are sort of dangerous in a way. Well, I, I suppose I, might... I would think of it, I think of it more as they're structurally dependent on the thing that they're trying to liberate themselves from, mm. if you see what I'm yeah. saying. You know, the, this, this sort of dream of autarky is structurally dependent in some very concrete material ways on, an, an in, on the sort of globalised, on the globalised infrastructure which it's, it's trying to replace. We are nearly at the end of 2021 and we have on our list COP26, but I'm quite keen to kind of gloss over COP26 because it's been so incredibly well talked about in other parts of the media. And I'm afraid we're going to bring COVID back uh, for the final section of this conversation because during November and December, there was a lot going on in the world of COVID. We had European liberal democracies consigning chunks of their own population to house arrest. I went to Vienna and reported on that on the first day of their lockdown for the unvaccinated and as I made pretty clear in that film was quite taken aback by just how comfortable that population was with the idea that a third of its own group might just not be allowed out anymore. Uh, that was quite a chilling experience. We also reported on uh, the situation in Australia, a lady called Hayley Hodgson who spent 14 days in an Australian camp even though she didn't even have COVID because she had she had fibbed about having had a test at the right time. So apparently there was a punitive element of it. We don't exactly know because no one in the entire Australian government will answer us on this point. We have been entirely stonewalled. Mary, have you shared some of my disquiet about these developments or do you think it's just the continuation of a sensible health 
response. And people like me, by drawing attention to these things, are creating some kind of phony culture war, and we're in fact a danger to society. On COVID, um, a, a very observant friend of mine uh, said not long ago that, in his view, um, COVID policy um, was what it was because of the directions we were, as a society, were heading in anyway, which is to say, you know, we've embraced even more atomization because it just felt it was the only obvious thing to do in a society where actually atomization is just well advanced anyway, and COVID has just allowed us to take that to its logical conclusion. I mean, as, as he put it, uh, the pod is our telos. You know, this meme that goes around about, I will not live in the pod and I will not eat bugs. And this idea that in fact, we're all destined just to end up living in these, these little, little one bed um, pods um, and, and surviving on mealworm slurry. And this is actually the future which liberalism has in store for us. You know, this is obviously not my view, um, but it's the a me matrix, the right. matrix it's, future. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. The, ma the matrix future. And Plugs it's into a, the metaverse. Right. And it's a meme that does the rounds because I think certainly for, for people younger than me who are, who are living in grotty house shares and so on, it does, it, you know, it sometimes does feel a little bit like that. That in fact, the only bright spark of life left is, is the one you live online. And actually, IRL existence is fairly unrelentingly um, difficult and, and short of promise. And there's a, the, there is a view out there, um, for some at least, that you know, COVID policy has, has just accelerated you know, that, that tendency you know, in, in societies generally. I mean, I can't, I can't, I'm going to sidestep the issue of you know, differential incarceration policies for vaccinated and unvaccinated people. Um, and, and just just notice um, the thing which I found most salient and really the most painful of, of the entire sort of pandemic era, which has been a, a, a sense a sense which has just seemed overtaken everybody that COVID the COVID is a disease of sociality itself. That the only way we can escape COVID is just by eliminating all spontaneous, unsurveilled um, interpersonal interactions. And in fact, it's a it's a disease of of human intimacy, and it's it is in fact contact you know that hasn't been you know, illegitimate contact between people mingling, you know, a, a sense that just by interacting with one another, we're we're so we're somehow polluting one another, and that in fact the only ethical the only ethical way to act in this world is to retreat into our pods and engage, you know, as much as possible remotely. There was a story, was, wasn't there, I think it was South Korea that was road testing a kind of program to untacked. reduce. Yes. Untacked. Untacked, which has been accelerated during, the, this, is, this is a program to eliminate all human interaction from everyday life. Mm. Um, you know, you, 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 you order your library books and they're, and they're delivered automatically to a little um, deposit box and you retrieve it and then you go back to your pod and read it. I mean, it is the perfect dystopia. It, it is. I mean, it's not crazy or exaggerated to talk about dystopia in this mm -hmm. context because some of the most famous dystopias of literature mm -hmm. sound quite like, like this. Um, you know, The Machine Stops. Is that what it was yeah. called? Yeah, yeah which was, um, uh, I think it was in the 1920s, this vision of the future where we're all in little pods and no one actually has any contact. It's somehow very intuitively the most frightening possible future because it, for a lot of people it goes against all that is good and holy. I mean, if, if human contact is the source of everything good, eliminating it is 
the ultimate evil. I mean, people actually are beginning to think of the COVID experience in those terms, I think. Some people, yes, but on, but I'm, I'm surprised by how, how, just how deeply frightened people are, even, even of the latest variant, which, you know, as far as I can tell from reports is less severe. But the reports keep pouring out about, you know, rocketing cases and, you know, everyone, everyone everywhere has got, has got, Ill, I mean, but in a sense, you know, we're all sort of glued to this rolling ticker tape of numbers which are offered, you know, without context um, as evidence of our sort of ongoing sinfulness in insisting mm. on interacting with one another. For an the illness, young, the young, well, well, indeed, out in the nightclubs doing <laughs> things that they shouldn't be doing. It feels like that. It That's does. That's what Radio Four, BBC Radio Four, increasingly sounds like. It does, and I think you know, were I were I twenty one, I would feel it not unreasonable to still be out doing things I wasn't supposed to be doing because at the end of the day, when if you're twenty one and in de- otherwise good respiratory health, you know, you you just aren't very much at risk. Mm. Is it you? You might you'll probably just feel a bit rubbish for a couple of weeks, and then you'll go back to being all right again. So, in a sense, in a sense, I, I do. I feel like a lot is being asked, particularly of the young, who are, who are also the ones who are who are sort of stacked stacked up to the rafters in in over overpriced little pods, and now they're being told that they can't even go out to nightclubs and have sex with one another because we have to protect the boomers. And I, you know, if I were if I were a sort of you know young millennial or Gen Z, I'd be looking at that and thinking, hang on a minute. We have to say we've already, you know, the boomers have done all right, and you know, and now, and now you're asking us to sacrifice mm. what? Mm. Aris, I've been looking forward to this yeah. uh, discussion actually because you and I thought somewhat differently about the whole COVID. As I, I'm just going to caricaturize your own Go views on. for you, which is that I remember distinctly in the beginning yeah. of the pandemic, uh, you were quite sort of moved and inspired by the assertion of the state and the clamping down on nonsense ideas of individualism <laughs> and uh, everyone having a moral purpose to get together and defeat the virus. And it feels like, in fact, you appeared at an unheard event and got lots of uh, comments of people who were quite unhappy with your yeah. views. Now is your chance to um, tell us about any kind of journey you've been on in 2021. You know, look, I think I'm quite a, a boring COVID centrist at this point in that um, when it began, I saw COVID as as almost like, you know, those kind of fluorescent liquids you inject into the bloodstream to, to show where any blockages are in, in the system. So it showed up the, the fragilities and the, the blockages within our body politic, I guess, or like our economic system as well. So we suddenly realised like, oh, we can't, we can't make masks. We need to, you know, go to China and beg them to, you know, allow us to have some masks or capes or, you know, whatever, all these kind of things. All, all the, um, awareness now of you know fragile global supply chains and stuff that didn't cut through until covid happened and i think it was a way to bring back the state uh as as an actor um as you know as a competent actor which i think is a good thing i still think is a good thing that's happened well i think we just have a particularly incompetent state but i think it was a so i mean things like you know building the the vaccine center very good thing, selling it, very bad thing. So, you know, it's always one step forward, two steps back in Britain. Um, But in terms of the current situation, you know, look, I actually, I think where I disagree with you is I I resent how the whole thing's become politicised from the start. Like, you know, it's it's become part, it's become just another front of this, you know, giant rolling global kind of culture war where 
like I feel, you know, like I've been vaccinated twice. I've had COVID. I'm in no particular hurry to get a booster. I think I'd, you know, if if Omicron is as mild as they say, I think I'd just rather get that. Um, hopefully I don't die after having said this, so yeah, everyone gets a laugh at me. But... Do you feel you've reached the end of your... I mean, it's over for me. I, I've, you know, COVID's done. Um, and I think... What I think at this seen... point, I think at this point, look, we would... everyone who wants to be vaccinated is vaccinated, right? We've locked down the country for as much as we can, realistically. I don't think the political system... Wait, you know, can... wait and see what they, have, what they do in January. I really hope they don't close the schools down in January. It feels almost impossible to kind of weigh up the, the relative risks or whatever, because the whole thing is so like, madly politicised. I think it's interesting that you have reached this point, at least, um, of feeling that it's sort of enough for you now. Because I do remember you were quite sort of firm, no, I mean, look, firm I, on I, that. So and I think without wishing to take you as a kind of cipher yeah. for uh, the normie part of the population, yeah. which I'm sure you would appreciate, <laughs> I think a lot of people have been on that journey. And even people who were very... You know, I know people in my own family and friendship group who were really quite militant about yeah. the whole thing in the beginning, and they've just sort of said, "I'm done now." Yeah. You know, at this point, it's two years down the line. We can't go on like this. Yeah. At some point, you know, we can't just live hand to mouth on updated vaccinations to find out if we're going to be allowed to leave our houses or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I was very hawkish until there were vaccines. You know. Like I say, everyone who everyone who wants the vaccine has had the vaccine now. Um, like even with two jabs, I think my chance of dying is very very low. Hopefully, um, you know how much more. What what more can we do? Yeah. I mean, one thing I would actually take issue with what you said just previously is this idea that it's been in any way a reassertion of state power, because I think what we saw during this COVID period was states reduced to sort of pupils in a classroom who were competitively ranked in things like the Financial Times on certain pre-agreed metrics and literally put in rank order and given awards if they're at the top of it or punished if they're at the bottom of it. And in fact, if anything, it felt like a diminution of state power because whatever was decided at the level of the World Health Organization or by a few leading Western nations was then very rapidly copied by the entirety almost of the world. And we famously hold Sweden as an exception mm. to this, and there were others. But it showed how little power states actually have in the climate of fear and when there is big public pressure at the level of these international organizations. Locally elected leaders, they just want to fall into line, they want to be seen to do the right thing quickly. They don't want to be awkward. It's like I say, it's just another front in this kind of you know rolling, endless culture war, which I hate. I absolutely really hate it. Um, but See, I, well, go on. I just don't think it's a minor culture war, Aris. That sort of diminishes it or makes I don't it feel think it's minor. But I think it's... it's the epistemological battle that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. It's people who see an entirely rational worldview where only the measurable exists and where there is no counter argument to something that can achieve a provable increase in a particular chart that has been decided is important versus people who have other values that they think matter a lot and they may not be very good at describing them 
that is is not a, maybe it is the culture war, but it's it's an important one, uh, and it doesn't feel like we're anywhere close to solving. I disagree. It. I don't think it is rational. I mean, if you look at if you look at it in America particularly, where you have this kind of almost subculture of people who are like super COVID fearful, you know, mm. like masking inside the house or like making their children mask. You know, it's got like all this kind of crazy stuff that we don't have here, thankfully, yet. Um, that That is not rational. That is not based on any kind of rational calculation of, you know, the risks of weighing up. And I'm, what I'm saying is the whole uh, culture war around COVID has basically removed any possibility of kind of rational analysis of, you know, risk versus reward. We have finally reached December. We haven't got into the Omicron variant because I think we've said enough about that. And by the moment of New Year's Eve, we'll probably know a lot more about it. Um, this is going out on December the 31st. Uh, we are recording this very slightly beforehand, so I don't know exactly what the Omicron situation will be, but we have had a whistle stop, in fact, quite detailed tour of 2021 and its big movements. It's certainly been a very strange and it feels quite consequential year. And Aris and Mary, thank you so much for helping us understand it. Thank you, Aris. Thank you for having me. And thank you for tuning in. Happy New Year if you haven't already crossed into 2022. And we'll see you on the other side. This was Unheard. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.